This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We're going to be talking with Tom Ricketts of Evolutionary Tree Capital Management, who's going to talk through his firm's long-term approach to building portfolios. Innovation is a key theme. Uh, There'll be a lot of interesting thoughts on uh, on how he builds portfolios and, and, and that innovation theme. But we're going to start off the show, as usual, with Professor Siegel. Professor, uh, you've been talking inflation. We got some more inflation reports as you think about what's happening in the markets, the bond markets. How are you looking at the, the latest data? Yeah, found some very interesting uh, data, Jeremy, this week. Of course, the CPI, and it was the first time in almost six months where we came in pretty much at expectations. In fact, uh, the core rate was a slight uh, bit even better. However, whatever joy you might have in thinking inflation is moderating was erased 24 hours later when the PPI, Producer Price Index, came in well above expectations again. The PPI is now 7.8% above a year ago. So, I mean, this is a, you know, I I do not think that it is moderating uh, at all. When I looked at the details of the CPI report, again, I see very little in the housing area, which uh, we've been talking about is lagged in the way it's it's put into the index, and uh, that that's going to be a, a persistent push uh, in the months ahead. Um, it, it, the, the, the CPI gave maybe a little bit of breathing room um, for uh, Powell, uh, you know, to still maintain temporary. But you get more and more Fed officials are now coming forward and saying it's time to stop uh, the um, um, open market purchases and uh, begin the taper. Uh, We will have uh, at the end of this month the uh, Jackson Hole Conference. um, And, um, um, uh, you know, clearly uh, there could be an announcement that's um, that's uh, made at that time. Uh, I think one of the most surprising figures that we got was actually this morning, uh, the 10 o'clock um, uh, data on the University of uh, Michigan uh, sentiment, uh, consumer sentiment dropped by an almost record amount of 11 points to uh, from 81 to to, uh, to 70, which is, is actually below uh, the low point of the pandemic last year, which is sort of hard to believe. Um, uh, and almost all of the, uh, uh, the drop has to do with, uh, expectations, although there was also a drop in current uh, conditions. Um, now some of them are, are, some people are interpreting that as the spread of the Delta, but if you dig into the data, it, it might be the shock of people buying cars and, uh, major appliances, um, that's where sentiment really went uh, low, not only in terms of availability, but jump in prices. Um, but uh, uh, this, this, uh, this, this, this change, um, but we did not see it in um, the um, conference board consumer confidence that was released earlier this month. But this was a, a big drop. We'll see whether it's an anomaly and comes back next month or whether it's something that's uh, more persistent. You know, you often were before the pandemic. We're doing a lot of travel. Uh, I don't know how how your travel schedule has shaped up with Delta now. Uh, do you the have have you been yeah. booked for things? Are you thinking of traveling? What's your anecdotes on your own personal story there? Well, my own personal per- travel um, was uh, that uh, last la- last week I, I did my first conference. Um, 
in Denver, and it was very successful, uh, live conference. Um, uh, I went on a plane and, and, and back. Um, so uh, I, I am not changing my travel plans. I have one more live travel plan uh, on September 1st. I'm not changing that. That's in Phoenix. Um, uh, you know, I am not, uh, I'm not changing my plans, but I, I understand there are others that are, um, I mean, clearly, uh, now he was listening to Dr. Scott Copley this morning. Um, he's uh, more cautious than he was. He said the surge in the South may come North. He doesn't know because the vaccination rates are higher. So now he's extending a possible extended period of high rates of transmission uh, in the northern northern areas uh, that may last uh, into October. Um, uh, earlier, his statement seemed to imply a much faster go through. Now, he's not sure that it will, but that's true. Now, one should also remember that if you are vaccinated and even if you have a breakthrough vaccination, uh, breakthrough uh, infection, excuse me, uh, you know, the, the hospitalization rate and the death rates are extremely low. Um, if you're not vaccinated, the Delta variant is, uh, we know, is, is a danger for you, particularly with, uh, with uh, pre-existing conditions. We also have to remember what might be happening since vaccines are only authorized for children 12 or over. Um, that becomes now a major area uh, of concern, those um, children under 12, whether they possibly could get it and what, what, what that really means um, going forward. So there's certainly a little bit more uncertainty on that. Um, uh, Dr. Scott, believes this is the last wave uh, to go through. Uh, he's not concerned about the Lambda variant that has been discussed before. Um, uh, so uh, that might put a, 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 a bit of a depression on consumer spending and travel over the next um, two or three months. Um, and, uh, 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 you know, that I think is uh, being factored into the market. Although, interestingly enough, um, uh, the reopening stocks, although they've sunk a bit, have not really sold off in any major way. And value is holding relative to its own on growth, over, certainly even over the last week or, or, or two in the markets. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see. I, I, I had my my first work trip last week, and I have September, October. We got a few trips. It'll be interesting to see. I assume all those are going to stick around for now. Uh, we'll see how that yeah. how that shakes. Um, any other comments on what's happening in the bond market? I mean, the yields uh, they seem to be yeah. Be uh, well, the yields uh, again. Um, uh, you know, they, they they now seem to be find a comfortable area in the in in the in the one thirties. Uh, if we get a taper announcement by uh, Powell at the uh, at the Jackson Hole meetings, um, that we may see a little tremor there. But don't forget, uh, because of the Delta variant, the, the hedge demand for Treasuries is still extremely uh, small. Um, if if this Delta variant burns itself out. Um, uh, you know, we really could see a big rise in um, uh, rates uh, in the last four months of, of this year. Very good, Professor. Enjoy the weekend. Thanks for some comments to start the show. Thank you very much. See you next week. See you next week. We're going to be talking for the remainder of the program with Tom Ricketts, who, uh, again, from the founder of Evolutionary Tree Capital Management. He's the chief investment officer, portfolio manager, an analyst, he founded the firm in, in 20, uh, before he found the firm in 2017, he was senior portfolio manager at Sands Capital, uh, which basically had $20 billion under management. Tom, welcome to Behind the Markets. Great to be here, Jeremy. It's, uh, it's an honor to be invited onto your show and to speak to you and your, your audience. Um, should be a fun show. Yeah, well, thanks for coming. Tell us a little bit, so you, you came from Sands Capital. Tell us a little bit how you decided to found Evolutionary Tree. What was your vision that you guys were, were thought there was a big need in the market for, for what you were going to solve? Yeah, so, um, you know, at Evolutionary Tree, we're focused on what I call innovation investing. 
and uh, we can talk a little bit later, but I really view this as the third investment style. You know, there's value investing, then growth investing, now innovation. And I think launching a new firm dedicated to that, being focused on that, is is needed in the marketplace. Um, you know, the, the the kind of the idea of evolution is another key part of what we do, <clears throat> you know, which is really around systematically understanding how innovation drives the evolution of product services and industries and positioning portfolios really to benefit from that over time. So we, we like to call it the uh, our equation for value or wealth creation is innovation plus evolution equals opportunity. Um, so we're we're a long-term focused investor. We do concentrated investing in innovative businesses, publicly traded, uh, with a long-term, typically looking over five seven years or more. Uh, we've got a separate account capability. There's a mutual fund vehicle. Uh, the, what we call the strategy, the main one is our Beagle Innovator strategy, and it's got a nice, very strong three-year track record. So we're we're proud that we're building um, a top-ranked uh, and large-cap growth strategy, really built on this idea of innovation investing. So let's dig into that. So you know the the style box is always hard to get away from the style box, and the Morningstar style sure. box, you know, dominates and. And so you're alluding to that there and, and sort of innovation being in the growth category. But talk about what you think separates innovation from traditional growth. I mean, value people think of as dying companies, sort of old school. You know, they're not, the, uh, they're not always at the head of innovation. But what, what, tell us about innovation versus growth. Yeah, I mean, uh, stepping back a little bit, I, I like to remind investors that the, the two dominant styles of investing, value and growth investing, were really developed – in the 20th century, in the early 1900s, you know, value investing really took off as the, the dominant style. And, of course, that continues today, and value matters. Um, you know, post-World War II, kind of moving, kind of a combination of the industrial age with kind of the consumer age, uh, we saw kind of these, these very large brand growth companies come into being, and that kind of launched the growth style at, for good and bad. Um, but I think you know investors really know uh, deep down that we live in a different economy. We're not in the industrial, even the consumer age. We're in the digital age. And I like to describe the economy today as really the innovation economy. And innovative businesses are quite different in their economics from more traditional companies. So the, the two dominant styles, I think, are getting stale, in my opinion, really need to be updated and perhaps uh, a third style is really emerging, which is really developing an investment approach around uh, finding important innovations, uh, identifying the leading innovators, developing them, um, and benefiting from that. I mean, most investors and just consumers in general know, wow, there's just a lot of accelerating change around them. It, you know, there's always a new version of a product or some next generation offering. And investors are trying to figure out, how do I tap into that? How do I benefit from that? And I don't know if the traditional you – know, I know your question was really growth, but I don't know if the traditional growth style is is optimally positioned to benefit. There's a correlation. Obviously, innovative companies grow, uh, and then that kind of eventually ends up perhaps later in the cycle and into a growth strategy. But let me make one other quick point on this, maybe more directly answering your question the, the growth style, a big part of the process is to do growth screens where you're, you're basically looking for companies that have grown in the past at an above average rate. Typically, it's kind of, you know, five-year time horizon, which companies are grown at above average for the past five years. And then that's the growth screen. That's often the starting point for a lot of growth managers. That's too late in the value creation process. We know that S-curves are compressing, meaning new products and innovations are being launched and adopted much more rapidly. You can't wait artificially five years to embrace these innovative businesses. So rather than chasing what I call an outcome, and growth is just an outcome, it's much more important to look for those root causes of future growth, because by the way, you only get paid on future growth, not past growth. Um, and the way to do that is to go to the source, which is identifying important innovations that are going mainstream, figure out who the real innovators are, the, the makers, not the fakers, and uh, identify those and, and get, in, get in early. So I think innovation investors, and I'll, I'll pause here, but 
innovation investors um, and strategies perhaps have an advantage in kind of going earlier in that value creation cycle, earlier on the S-curve, um, and going to the source of future growth. When you, maybe we could get to some some of the specific innovations today that your team is most excited about um, and, and sort of make it, what are those early stage things that you think are, you know, that, that your firm is rallying behind? Yeah, so, you know, I, I'd first like to define innovation. You know, it, it's kind of a nebulous term. Innovation does not equal technology. Innovation um, is actually much, should be much more broadly defined. Technology is one type of innovation. Um, you know, there's uh, business model innovation. There's marketing and brand innovation. There's service innovation, experience innovation. I think the great innovators of our time uh, combine multiple types of innovation to highly differentiate their offerings in the marketplace. So I kind of like to start there. Um, perhaps maybe I'll hit on maybe three and then I'll pause. Um, you know, in the experience innovation fields, uh, a company like Peloton, I think, is a great example of a company that um, is innovating in the fitness area. They have their connected fitness uh, bikes and treadmills, um, you know, the experience part of it is it's kind of special, you know, to be a connected fitness kind of subscriber and, you know, they, they'll deliver the bike and set it up for you. And then you're not just sitting on a kind of a dumb hardware workout equipment. You're actually connected to these celebrity instructors that create this incredible experience and motivate you. And so, that's the power of innovation is being able to combine that with something kind of a prior generation and make it dramatically better. And um, so that, that would be one example, you know, business model innovation. I mean, we're seeing an explosion in kind of subscription based business models kind of as a service is one way to think about it. The obvious ones are software as a service. Um, you know, an example here would be a HubSpot, uh, which is a leader in marketing automation software. You know, I really think of HubSpot as potentially the next Salesforce.com, which is uh, a bold statement. But um, you know, they're really helping the marketing department automate a lot of different processes around developing digital campaigns. Um, and again, it's it's business model innovation, offering up you know, and automating a lot of manual-based processes. Uh, that's really, frankly, innovative. And they built a kind of multi-product suite and platform, which is quite powerful. Uh, you know, maybe one other innovation, you know, I talked about marketing innovation, or rather I want to touch on marketing innovation, uh, which goes beyond just building a brand. It's, you know, marketing as a field is really undergoing some pretty big evolutionary changes around shifting from traditional advertising venues into digital marketing. There's many different channels and different types of digital ads. But you know, one example more recently we've seen an explosion in growth is connected TV where, you know, we all know it, consumers aren't waiting till 9 o'clock to watch their show. They're going home whenever they're going home. Maybe they're working from home, and they want on-demand viewing. So they've shifted to streaming from kind of linear traditional TV, and those new channels, and there's a number of them. There's subscription video on demand with a Netflix, but there's the growth of a field called advertising video on demand or AVOD, and uh, that's changing marketing uh, for TV advertising. Companies like Roku, uh, you know, which is a dominant platform for accessing different streaming services. A lot of folks might not know this, but uh, 35 to 40% of smart TVs sold in North America today have the Roku operating system embedded in it. That's a really powerful position. So, you know, innovation comes in different um, different types. Yes, technology is a big part of that, but experience, business model, marketing, process, cost, many ways to innovate. And I think, and I'll just make one comment and pause, but to me, the world's really bifurcating into two types of companies. Uh, there's innovators, which we touched on a lot here, but there's also what I would just call non-innovative or less innovative or imitative companies. And they're going to lose out. I think in industry after industry, the leading innovators are going to take market share from the less innovative businesses. That's the most fundamental force across the economy. And as an investor, you want to lean into the innovators and be careful and not embrace the less innovative. 
We're talking with Tom Ricketts, who is the founder of Evolutionary Tree Capital Management, about his firm's focus on innovation uh, and, and this interesting, interesting worldview here. Tom, if, if you were to say, you know, one of the challenges of investing across innovation, I would think, and, and this is often the challenge of growth investing, is are, are, are do people get overly excited? They end up paying too much. And, and, and you talk about like you got to get ahead of the sales growth, right? So like it's all based on the, on the potential, you know. So how do you think about valuation risk in these types of companies and, and maybe magnified with that overexcitement? Yeah, let, let me back up one step, if, if you don't mind, Jeremy. Um, it's an important question you ask. I think a lot of investors think, gosh, you know, investing in innovative businesses, perhaps that, uh, you know, is that riskier? As I mentioned earlier, I think, I think the innovative businesses are less risky, perhaps, than the less innovative ones they're taking market share from. So I kind of start there. But it, it is important to point out that, you know, innovations evolve over time, and they, they do start off in what I call the hype phase, meaning they're more conceptual in nature. They're perhaps not ready for mainstream adoption. That's a pretty dangerous zone. I call it the hype zone. And, uh, you know, we do have a lot of companies coming public via SPACs that I think are more conceptual than real. Uh, Nikola is a great example of that, um, you know, kind of vaporware of electric vehicle technology and, you know, kind of a wrapped in a marketing wrapper, uh, you, you want to be careful out there. So um, the way we describe our process is we have, uh, we view every innovation through what we call the hype readiness continuum, meaning uh, innovations start on the left-hand side on in the hype phase, and then they hopefully develop and progress and eventually cross over some threshold where they are truly ready for mainstream adoption. So we focus our research on companies that are moving into that zone of readiness. How do you do that is the question. And there's two hurdles that are required. First, any new innovation has to demonstrate technical feasibility, meaning it has to work. It's got to be reliable and cost-effective, technical feasibility. But even that's not enough. You have to be able to wrap an economic or business model around that innovation to drive recurring revenues and eventually scale it into a profitable business. So we spend, our team spends a lot of time sorting out innovations into ones that are still in that risky zone of hype, and we avoid those. And then really zero in and focus on the ones that are really ready and are going going mainstream. That's one of the most fundamental ways that we lower risk with our approach. And then we do a tremendous amount of in-depth research on these companies and these ecosystems relative to our eight investment criteria. So perhaps later we can touch on that. I think your question was on valuation, so I'm not trying to skirt that. Um, I, I like to remind uh, investors that you know, companies evolve kind of up the S-curve. They go through different stages of growth, you know, kind of venture stage in the early days, and hopefully they emerge and hit an inflection point. They're kind of growing and scaling rapidly, and then growth slows down, and then they mature and decline. That's kind of that classic life cycle. And, and the way to approach valuation, in my opinion, is to adapt the valuation toolkit based on where the company is on that on that life cycle. So obviously companies that are earlier, you might use different metrics or tools than companies that are further along where you can use traditional DCF. I think um, big picture, you know, maybe related to your question is, you know, where are these innovators trading today? Um, you know, I actually think with the shift in the markets towards the reopening trade, which in my opinion is just short-term in nature, um, a lot of the secular innovators out there, growth companies out there, uh, their valuations have come down. Um, I think in incrementally they're getting more attractive. They've kind of treaded water as we go through the year. So I think investors will come back to these innovative businesses. And I don't think the valuations for the, at least the quality innovators, the ones that are in that zone of readiness, that a true competitive advantage, that are really the leading innovators, um, I think they're uh, perhaps more attractively valued than people might think. So that reopening, um, you, you mentioned it being sort of very short term. And any uh, any any other comments on on that reopening versus the the innovation economy? Is it is it all just uh, in your in your view a very very short term indicator here for for the start of the year? Yeah, I I mean one of the things I always like to lead off with is you know we're very long term oriented, looking out over five years, and what we 
don't do is time the market or the economy or, uh, you know, talk in terms of trade. So I, I want to have enough humility here to say that um, no one really knows, um, you know, how some of the, the reopening industries will do over the next couple of years. Obviously, the government is, has a tremendous amount of stimulative policy uh, playing out that could, could boost or, or goose that growth for a while. But I do want to, you know, point out that the valuations and stock prices for many of the more cyclical industries that have really rebounded pretty dramatically this year are really back to, if not above, pre-COVID levels. So I think a, a, a number of the industries and valuations are kind of reflecting uh, much improvement in the economy. Uh, meanwhile, kind of the more secular uh, growth businesses are kind of pushed aside, but I, I don't think there's any fundamental change in the direction of the economy, which as it led off with at the beginning of the call, we're in the innovation economy. Innovation is not going out of style. Every industry is becoming tech enabled. We've, we all read about digital transformation. That long-term path for every industry is inexorable. And so I, I continue to believe that the most innovative businesses are going to be really well positioned over the next three to five years. And this reopening trade, again, the key word is trade. It's just the trade. I think the trade's largely played out. We're going to be talking with Tom Ricketts for the full show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, Tom, we were talking about how your firm is focused on innovation but let's let's get into the name evolutionary tree. Um, talk about how evolution uh, ties what why you, you call the firm evolutionary tree capital management and how that ties to thinking about innovation. How are those two concepts interlinked? Yeah, so I'll try not to get uh, too wonky here. I'll, I'll keep it high level. But uh, the the phrase evolutionary tree actually comes from uh, Charles Darwin. Um, you know, in his book on the origin of species, and basically the the idea that um, you know species evolve and and speciation happens through a branching network that looks like a tree. And um, so, why does that relate to business and investing? Well, um, you know, it's interesting that Charles Darwin, when he was trying to think up a model for how species and animals and plants, etc., evolve, was he actually took uh, inspiration from the economy. Um, and, and some of the, the, the research that was going on at the time. Well, we can take the other side of the coin, which is the, you know, the economy and the innovation economy we live in, we're seeing every product and service rapidly changing and evolving. Um, you know, we talked about the evolution of TV with the rise of streaming and SVOD and AVOD. We talked about uh, the shift to cloud computing and software as a service. So literally everything in every industry is evolving and it's important that rather than taking what I call a mechanistic industrial age view of the world, which, again, I think is so much a part of the traditional investment styles of, of value and growth, uh, taking more of a, a biological viewpoint is becoming is a better metaphor for how industries and technologies are evolving. Um, you know, maybe a little bit on we've developed a model uh, for this pattern of change. Uh, we have a white paper on our website evolutionarytree.com and a blog there. But um, essentially, every product and service evolves at three different levels. And I'll keep this very high level. The, the most basic level are new versions of a product. Think of an upgrade from, you know, iPhone 5 to iPhone 6. You know, every product or service has kind of their new iteration or, you know, version. That's the lowest level of how things evolve. The next level up is once you start to incorporate much more significant innovation uh, within the product or service, and, and you're doing what's the academics called combinatorial innovation. You're taking an existing product or service, and then you're integrating much something much more significant and innovative. That often leads to a next generation product or service. Um, and so that's the, the level two. The second level up is um, generations. Um, and we see that across every industry where new offerings are coming out, and they're just they're 2x or 10x better, you know, than what came before. You know, we talked about Peloton with their connected fitness. That's clearly a dramatic improvement in the bike sitting in a room as a coat hanger. Um, so we're seeing more and more of these next generation products. But the highest level is the paradigm, where you have an architectural change driven by a radical innovation leading to a wholesale change, a re-architecting of the product or industry. So a really quick example would be the evolution of watching video at home 
first-generation VHS players, you rent a tape from Blockbuster. That's Gen 1. Second generation was you bought a DVD player, better resolution, DVD prices came down, you built your own library at home. That's second generation. And that helped companies like Disney and the Hollywood model. And then, of course, you know where I'm going with the rise of the Internet and broadband, we have a paradigm shift to streaming video. And then that's branched off into different types of streaming, whether it's SVOD or AVOD. Again, that concept is a, a branching, a speciation as you go through these different generations and paradigms. That is an incredibly powerful way to view the world. That's why we call it our evolutionary lens. We look at every industry through that lens, and we are systematically building portfolios and finding these leading innovators that, are, that represent the next generation of leaders. Now, you also talk about sort of a flywheel process of innovation and how these things sort of kick in. Maybe sort of talk through what is this flywheel innovation process? Yeah, you know, stepping back, I mean, innovation is the driver of value creation across the economy, and it, it, it is constantly happening. So I, I like to think of it more as a circular process than a linear one. Um, you know, at the if you can kind of conceptualize a circle or a flywheel, at the bottom I have the word growth. And as I mentioned earlier, growth is just an outcome, and you don't get paid on past growth. The question is what what's driving future growth, and you know, on the flywheel – Above that are three units of analysis. There's innov innovators, so the, the companies and entrepreneurs that are innovating, and we systematically identify those. We have a proprietary innovator database we've developed with over 350 companies. And then so that's one unit of analysis, identify the innovators. And then the second part of this flywheel is to figure out, well, what actually are they innovating? What are the new products and services, features, and business models? And I really dig into that. And relate that to that hype readiness continuum we talked about earlier. Is it still in the hype phase? We avoid that. Or is it in the process of going mainstream? And then we, we clearly want to prioritize that. So that's the second unit, innovation. And then the third unit, and, and I'll pause on a second, is I have found in my 26 years of investing, both at Evolutionary Tree and my former employer, Sands Capital, that... Um, a cluster or constellation of innovations is really what drives these secular trends that everyone's talking about, whether it's mega trends, themes, uh, industry trends. Th these are important forces across the economy. But at the heart of really all of them is usually a collection of innovations. So we also systematically identify how innovation drives these forward-looking, uh, you know, multi-year trends. We have a proprietary database called Evolutionary Shift. Uh, database with over uh, over 150 trends. So we've organized and kind of re-architected the investment process to be much more innovation-focused, really around identifying the innovators, digging into what they're innovating, and how that drives secular trends. You know, one of your papers used a phrase that I, I really hadn't seen before talking about the markets and the economy, and I thought it may be an interesting phrase for you to, to talk to our listeners about. So you talk about bottom-up innovation and then sort of the macro-level innovation, but, but there was a, a phrase called meso-level trends. Uh, what does meso-level mean, uh, and, and how does that apply to innovation? Jeremy, I appreciate you uh, digging into some of the white papers we have on our website. Um Yes. Uh, you know, I think the, the investing world has kind of only looked at the economy kind of through two lenses, bottom up and top down. That is a little bit old, in my opinion. The action is really happening at two levels, bottom up with these innovative businesses and entrepreneurs developing and creating these amazing new products and services. Uh, but there's also a lot of action happening at what I call the, the meso level. Meso is Greek for middle. And so what does that mean? Well, the middle part of the economy um, is really within not just industries, but also ecosystems. Again, there's a biological word there, ecosystem. Um, and everyone's talking more about how ecosystems are competing with other ecosystems. So um, understanding how companies compete and develop innovation within these innovation networks or ecosystems, I think, is the new way of kind of uh, conducting your research. So when we do our research, we're uh, you know, going to industry conferences, reading trade journals, talking to industry experts, talking to users, and collecting a ton of data. 
and we're doing it in the context of these innovation networks and ecosystems. Uh, we do not use traditional sector and industry um, demarcations. I think we're seeing more and more that, that those are kind of false ways of kind of dividing up the economy. A lot of innovative companies kind of cross over multiple industries. Amazon's a great example of that, or Apple. So uh, looking at the economy bottom-up plus meso down, I think is really the most powerful lens uh, to be to be analyzing and looking for investment opportunity. We're talking with Tom Ricketts, who's the founder of Evolutionary Tree Capital Management, about his firm's unique uh, approach to looking at innovation. Uh, so, Tom, let, let's get into a few more innovative ideas. Um, and one of the things I, I saw you also write about is is and very relevant to our lives on a daily basis today is the biology biotech uh, innovation curve, and, and we see that every day with the vaccines and what, what's happening there. Is there is there something you, you would talk to about why that segment of of the, the market is one that your team is particularly excited about and, and, and how you're looking at the, the vast array of companies operating in, in the biotech space? Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the reasons why I mentioned earlier that, you know, innovation does not equal technology. Uh, there's a ton, you know, of innovation happening in the biotech and med tech and genomics spaces. Uh, I've been investing in biotech companies for over 20 years, and I, I can tell you I'm, I've never been more excited about the power of uh, not just one type of biotech recombinant proteins, which is really what launched the industry with insulin, <clears throat> Excuse me, but we've really seen the development of a number of new biotech innovation platforms uh, be developed, whether that's uh, gene therapy, whether that's RNA targeting technology. Uh, people talk a lot about gene editing, which is a little bit earlier in development. Um, it's exciting to see different ways of treating the underlying cause of disease. Um, and I think we're at more at the beginning than at the end. Uh, I look out over the next 10, 20, 30 years, and I couldn't be more excited about the potential for those innovations to go mainstream, to kind of move into that zone of readiness that we talked about. Uh, maybe one example, perhaps, uh, you mentioned Moderna. We don't. We haven't invested in Moderna. It's obviously been an amazing company targeting uh, the coronavirus. But to me, it's emblematic of a of a bigger thing happening, a bigger technology innovation, which is RNA targeting technology, basically modulating RNA in different ways. Um, obviously, Moderna used it to elicit an immune response and create a vaccine. Uh, but what we're seeing are other biotech companies that can modulate gene expression in different ways. One example would be a company called Arrowhead. Arrowhead's a leader in RNAi technology, which is RNA interference technology. And keep it simple, it basically allows you to uh, modulate or downregulate gene expression by targeting the RNA. Um, and it's we've already seen FDA-approved products on the market, so this is clearly going mainstream and with improvements in delivery technology and identifying a lot of new targets, which is the harvest of genomics that we've seen, um, I think we're in the very early stages of kind of the RNA revolution, Moderna being one example, but I think Arrowhead and a, and a number of other companies are quite promising. Again, every company I mentioned on this show is not a recommendation. I just kind of put that out there. It's more sharing examples of companies that we're looking at perhaps investing in. Um, so yeah, biotech is very exciting. I think, frankly, it's a little bit underappreciated. I mean, Moderna is not underappreciated, but if you kind of get outside of, of a company like that, uh, you know, valuations have actually come down for a lot of the, I think, the leading innovative biotech companies. So it's, it's one of those areas or examples where I think it's still very underappreciated. In, in terms of Anything about biotech when you when you think about the the hit or miss element on some of these drug developments and and when you look at investing in companies or a set of companies is there something you do due to the nature of biotech that that how you diversify the bets around the different drug pipelines that people have? Yeah, that, I think that's a really important question. Is you know, how do you control for risk in biotech investing? Uh, another way to ask it is, isn't there a lot of binary risk, you know, with biotech companies, meaning, you know, if you get a bad clinical data point, you know, the stock's down a lot. Um, you know, it's there's different 
methods, techniques one can use as an investor. You know, we try and look for biotech companies that have true platform technologies, meaning uh, they're not relying on one drug or one program. Uh, I mentioned Arrowhead, for example. You know, they have this RNAi platform that is really an, an engine to spawn a growing pipeline of programs across different diseases. So they're not really relying on one program. Um, that doesn't mean that if they have a negative data point, the stock won't pull back. It can, but it, you're not. It all is not lost. You know, when you have a a true innovative platform technology. So that's one way to control for risk, you know, having multiple programs, perhaps even having some revenue generating drugs. These are things that you can look for that can continue to lower risk. We, All of our companies in the Evolutionary Tree Beagle portfolio um, have strong balance sheets. So this is one of those areas where being really well-funded matters. There's that burn rate that people talk about. Um, you know, the companies that have the innovation platforms in biotech often can strike partnerships with larger biotech or pharmaceutical companies that can, you know, bring in revenues to fund uh, their internal pipeline. So, you know, we focus on what we think are the most important biotech innovation platforms, find the leading innovators that have the strong balance sheets, the deep pipeline, and perhaps are either close to or already have revenue-generating drugs, and all those things we think reduce risk. And then, you know, we own multiple biotech companies, so, you know, we're wrong from time to time. Uh, that's why you have a portfolio, um, and that, so that's another way you can also reduce risk. Let me just introduce our guest one more time. We're talking with Tom Ricketts, who's the founder of Evolutionary Tree Capital Management. Um, Tom, when we you talked about some of your portfolio construction ideas, but but maybe we could talk through how you combine these different innovations together. You mentioned going for concentrated type portfolios, I assume fairly differentiated from the market. How do you, how many innovation areas do you like to try to get exposure to? Um, we talked about. Uh, a few of them today, from biotech to the SaaS businesses, a little bit of the marketing innovation with, with HubSpot that you mentioned. How do you think about constructing that portfolio of innovation? Yeah, uh, important question. Um, you know, when you're building innovation portfolios, you know, being thoughtful about portfolio construction and risk management is really critical. In fact, we, we like to define what we do as a risk-managed approach to innovation investing. And to your question, the building the portfolios are really a big part of that. So we, we do concentrate in our best ideas. Uh, we typically own about 30 companies. 25 to 35 is, is the typical range. Um, one of the benefits of having a diversified, or having diversity rather, within that concentrated portfolio is you can mix and match a variety of different areas of innovation. I mean, it's with a 30 stock portfolio we have today, we're actually representing about 80 different innovations. So while the company focus might be around 30, those 30 companies often have a lot of different innovations. So you can actually get quite a lot of diversification by innovation within a pretty focused set of companies. And I think people sometimes maybe overlook that. Uh, this portfolio also represents about 50 or so secular trends. So a concentrated portfolio, about 30 innovators, gives you exposure to about 80 different innovations and about 50 secular trends. So, you know, we do a lot of things to uh, manage risk and, and build a portfolio. Probably the most important is our eight investment criteria. Um, we probably don't have enough time to go through that, but it's really built around looking for attractive industries that are benefiting from innovation, that uh, address large markets where there's still a lot of room for growth, uh, where they're evolving down what we like to call less competitive path. Uh, a word that I've coined is opoly, meaning monopoly, duopoly, oligopoly. We All of our companies, we think, and have assessed are in that, going down that evolutionary path. And then at the company level, we're trying to find not just the so-called industry leader. Everyone's looking for the industry leader. What you really care about is who's out, which company's out innovating the competition because they become the future leader. Um, and we look at you know, what are the incremental and important innovations? What's the innovation pipeline within each company? Uh, and we really look further out. The markets are, frankly, pretty efficient in the next year or two. I would say the markets are less efficient in years three, four, five, and beyond. And so as a long-term investor, if you can really look deep into that innovation pipeline for each of your companies, 
that gives you an informational edge. And then, yes, we care about valuation. You know, we build financial models. We're looking out to see how these companies can scale and become more profitable over time. Um, I can make some comments about how we think about valuation if if you're interested, but uh, let me pause there. Yeah, like what would you say if you had to say the average valuation of of your basket is today? Like, what are those for for these innovators? Like, what what are the valuation metrics you would look at for your portfolio versus, say, the Nasdaq, the Russell, and you know S and P five hundred? I assume these stocks are at a premium. Um, and but how do you think about that? Yeah, so you know you, you probably have learned by now that you know we take an unconventional approach to a lot of what we do. Um, because we have found that a lot of the conventional techniques and processes really don't work that well when you're investing in highly innovative companies. And valuation is an important one. We don't have enough time here to go super deep, but I'll make a few quick comments. One is the conventional way to value stocks is to do things like look at the next 12-month PE or price-to-revenue multiple, um, you know, EV to EBITDA. And it's always like next 12 months. That's too short-term. Highly innovative companies with a deep innovation pipeline are going to drive many innovations over many years. I've coined the term secular innovator, which is different than secular grower. Secular innovators are launching a series of innovations that sustain growth. If you're looking at any next 12-month multiple, you are systematically underappreciating innovations in the out years. So So we don't do that. Second, the conventional approach is to, to have short-term price targets. The Wall Street loves to do this. You know, they've got their you know end of year December 2021 you know price target, and now maybe they're beginning to look at December 2022. That again, that's too short-term oriented. So the way that we approach this is we're looking out over five to seven years. We're trying to understand what is that path of growth. What are the innovation drivers? Size them up. Um, you know, we'll look at upside and downside. But one of the ways I like to describe it is rather than looking for a stock that could be up 25 percent next 12 months, we're trying to look for innovators that can be up five to 10 X in the next five to 10 years. That's what we care about. So we're looking at I call it you probably heard the phrase multi bagger. You know, you're looking for a five bagger, 10 bagger. It's probably not the most professional way to describe it, but I like to call it multi capper. If you can take your current market cap and uh, multiply it by 5, 10 plus X, that's the way to think about it. And then the most innovative companies are able to truly scale up into much bigger businesses over 5, 7, 10 years. Um, in terms of the how people should allocate to innovation, uh, you, you mentioned, and we started off the show talking a little bit about growth in value being outmoded uh, and, and and you're talking about this new concept of innovation. How are you, th- when you talk to clients about allocating to your types of strategies, how, how do you think about sizing these types of innovation allocations in portfolios? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the most important questions that investors of all stripes are thinking about, whether you're an individual investor and you want to lean into you know, the Teslas of the world or the Apples, you know, they, they, they know intuitively that they ought to be allocating some of their equity assets into these innovators. They just, just don't really know to what extent how to do it. But I also think institutional investors, whether it's advisors or intermediaries or even large pension plans, endowments, foundations, this is a question facing all investors because the, so much of the value creation in the economy is accruing to these innovative businesses. We see it with the Fang M companies, but there's a whole number of emerging innovators coming behind them that are driving so much of that value and wealth creation. So to me, you probably know where where my answer is going is, I I think it's becoming more core. You know, perhaps someone might 10 years ago say, okay, that sounds risky, that's niche. I don't think so. I think, as we talked about earlier, if every industry is becoming tech-enabled and undergoing digital transformation, which it is, um, and the innovators are taking market share and more higher share of the profits with their industry from the non-innovators, I think leaning into innovation and having an innovation allocation is really critical. To me, it's mostly about just get started, get on that path, allocate what you're comfortable allocating, and then as you get more comfortable and realize, wow, 
these companies actually are sustaining growth and improving profitability that you can kind of increase that allocation. Ten years out, I think innovation is the third style, and I think it'll get carved out. I liked your comment earlier that we need to break out of the style boxes. Uh, I agree with that, you know, whether it's on a market cap perspective or kind of value and growth. But to me, and I'll pause, innovation is the root cause of growth. So you can get ahead of the growth guys by focusing on innovation. But innovation also creates value. It's fundamental to value. So I think value and growth investors need to think differently. And I, I think individual and institutions need to think about carving out an allocation to specialists in innovation investing. And Evolutionary Tree is one of only a handful of companies purely focused on this area of investment. Our final, probably our, our closing question here, but you know, if you think about you're building concentrated portfolios, if you took the broad market and should maybe try to quickly summarize, even though it's not, you know, if you said the S and P 500, which a lot of people use core, how much of that is is in poor innovators? I mean, you're finding the the extreme innovators. Is it how how bad of innovation is the is the broad market? Sure. You, you just teed that up for me. That's a great question. We we did an analysis, actually, of the S&P 500. We looked at every single company. And what we found was 25 to 30% of the companies are being negatively impacted in some way by innovation. So those are kind of the non-innovators. I hate to use the word disruption because I think that's a little bit of an abused term. But, you know, 20, wow, 25 to 30% of companies are being hurt in some way by innovation. And that kind of percentage has grown, I think, over time. About 15 to 20% of the companies are kind of the true innovators. Yes, Fang M's a part of that, but there's a, a growing number of other companies, kind of what I call the, the next generation of emerging innovators. And then there's actually a, a growing body of emerging innovators that are often not even in these major indices um, that are go- coming public, that are highly innovative, or if they are in the index, they're really small weights. So what we do at Evolutionary Tree is identify the leading innovators that perhaps are in the index, but then we're also systematically uh, identifying emerging innovators, and we own both leading and emerging innovators, and we think that's really the best way to build portfolios. Well, that's a great way to end. We've been talking with Tom Ricketts of Evolutionary Tree Capital Management about his firm's focus on innovation. Tom, thank you for joining Behind the Markets. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer today, Chris Tooks on the board. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.